Christina Stanford has been a licensed clinical social worker for over 13 years and practicing social work for 15 years. Her life's mission and passion is to help set women, children, and families free from the pain of their past trauma and to inspire them to discover a fulfilling life of freedom, joy, peace, and purpose. Christina received her Master of Social Work degree from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, 1999. She obtained her Bachelor of Social Work degree from Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama, 1997. Much of Christina's experience and clinical training have been in the public and private sectors, providing psychotherapy to children and families struggling with the effects of trauma, separation, and loss related to abuse and neglect. Christina specializes in treating trauma. As the founding president of the Living Waters Trauma Institute, LLC, Christina provides clinical training and consultation to organizations that work with human trafficking survivors, sexually exploited youth, and those who suffer with addictions. In addition, Christina speaks to national, state, and local organizations on a variety of topics related to trauma treatment, life balance, spirituality, depression, anxiety, and sex trafficking. Christina has appeared on several ABC and NBC affiliate television news programs, as well as the mission-focused internet program entitled It Is Written, addressing the psychological impact of trauma and the dynamics of the sex trafficking trade. Christina understands that trauma obstructs the view of every person's ultimate purpose on this planet. If the effects of trauma can be explored, processed and resolved in the context of a safe, supportive environment where healthy attachments and relationships can thrive, then women, children, and families will discover and actualize the lives of purpose they were created for. Christina currently provides individual, family, marital, and group psychotherapy to individuals, families, and couples in the Las Vegas area. She is happily married and the blessed mother of two very smart, very enthusiastic boys. Christine enjoys traveling, hiking, biking, writing, singing, public speaking, acting, and mentoring young women. After the special music, the next voice you will hear will be that of Christina L. Sanford.
healing for your soul. Amen. Thank you to the Abundant Life Youth Choir. Before I get started, I just want to say I'm Christina Sanford, and today I take a stand to end it now by being a voice for the voiceless, being a voice for the voiceless. I want to thank Pastor Madden today for, I'm getting some reverb. Can you turn this one off because I have a, a lapel, lapel mic. Thank you, guys. the congregation in the pulpit that he usually stands in. That's something that a lot of pastors don't do, amen? And so I appreciate that he's not selfish with his pulpit. I'm still getting that. I want to also... I wanted to acknowledge my husband, but I see him going like this in the back. So we'll talk about him a little bit later. <laughs> but I want um, my boys to stand, Brendan and Breslin. My son Breslin is 10, and my other son is just turned 14 this past week, and he's actually coming. I want my family to stand. They are my everything. They are my rock. They are my joy. They are the greatest source, or well, my children are the greatest source of joy, but also my greatest source of sorrow. Amen, mothers? <laughs> it's such a dichotomy when you're a parent because you love them so much, and because you love them so much, they can hurt you so bad. Amen? But I love my boys. And my husband is an amazing, amazing man of God. And um, God knew what he was doing when he put us together. So I want to just thank you guys and acknowledge you guys today. Thank you for your patience this week with my late hours and me staying up, praying and meditating and worshiping God, trying to figure out and hear what he was trying to say to me. Thank you for giving me that space for silence. So. You may be seated. I love you guys. I want to thank the Holy Spirit. This week as I was preparing, even a couple of weeks ago, um, I knew that I would be speaking today. And because the topic that I'm speaking on is the topic that deals with spiritual warfare, I don't know why I didn't expect it, but I did not expect that I, was, I would experience spiritual warfare while preparing for a sermon about spiritual warfare. Sometimes you just overlook things. And um, about midweek this week, um, I began to experience some struggles and um, the enemy began to create noise in my mind that I could not get rid of. And I just thank God for God-fearing friends, um, praying warrior friends, family who prayed for me this week um, and lifted up the banner against the enemy, the standard against the enemy this week because when I began to feel their prayers and I, began, I was praying myself, but as I began to experience the power of their prayers moving you talk about boulders being moved out the way. I just praise God for the power of his Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is there to help us to tear down strongholds. Amen. And so it was very ironic that the very thing that, that God had told me to say was the very thing that I experienced this week. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, the boulder is gone. And God has spoken to me. He has shared with me what he plans to say today. It will not be from me. It will, not, it will be my voice.
but it will be the power of God speaking to you today. I have already done the work of moving myself out of the way. And when you do that, there is peace. Um, I'm not nervous because I know that God has a word for you all today and for me. And I know that there's going to be deliverance that will come out of what the word of God will say to you today. Before I even start, I just want us to get into a spirit of worship as we prepare to receive what God has for us. I don't know if any of you even know this song, but this song has been on my heart all week. And I'm going to share it with you, and I want you, when I give you the cue, to sing along with me. And as we sing, I want you to think about the words. The words to the song are, this is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me, this is the air I breathe. Your very word spoken to me, this is the air I breathe. Your Holy Spirit living in me.
Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. This morning, I'm going to be addressing the enemy with authority. God has given us authority to stand up against the wiles of the enemy. Amen. God has said in his word that greater is he that is in me than he that is where. Amen. We know that scripture. We speak that scripture. Do we live that scripture? Are we walking in the power of God? Are we walking in the authority of God? Are we addressing the enemy with authority, knowing that nothing that he says, does, or tries to do will ever gain the victory over us in our lives? We are the children of God, and we have a special place in this world. Amen? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I read the scripture this week that said, Do not be afraid of their faces. Do not be afraid of their faces. Do not be afraid of their faces. There are many faces there today. I, I'm up here sometimes doing praise and worship, and one of the things that our team talks about is our faces and how sometimes our faces can show the hardness of our hearts. Um, sometimes our faces can show those things that maybe we're trying to hide, but it shows on our face. And so today... I will not be afraid of their faces. For God says, I am with thee to deliver thee. It's going to be some deliverance going on today. Amen. We're going to get some deliverance today. God is a good God. He is a great God. He can do anything but what? But fail. He has moved so many mountains out of my way. Yes, God is a wonderful God. He is a wonderful God. He is a wonderful God. It's time to hear a word from the Lord this morning, church. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to start with verse 10. And I'm going to be reading for the English from the English Standard Version. Is this the English? Yes, the English Standard Version. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but what I want you all to do, and sometimes we don't want to do this because I felt this way before too in church when they keep telling us to stand up. How many of you get irritated sometimes when they're like, and stand up, and stand up, right? Well, how about this? I'm going to ask you to stand on this scripture. This is the starting scripture. We can stand if Jesus died, amen? He died. He was crucified. He stretched out his arms. He suffered a horrific death. The least we can do is when his word is being read, stand. So I'm going to read in your hearing 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. I'm really trying to get this reverb to go away. If you could turn this mic off, that would be wonderful. It is off. It's still doing it. Okay. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her. And said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As 
for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. That's okay. Holy Spirit's got me. Then Amnon hated her with very, with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. today's message is the stronghold of shame. The stronghold of shame. Let's pray. a horrible thing to happen to Tamar. I mean, this is a girl who was just reaching puberty. And for her to experience such devastating horror at the hands of her own brother is something I can't even imagine. But I know that some of you know what that's like. I know that some of you have experienced the very terror, the very shame that Tamar experienced that dark night in her brother's chamber. We talked a little bit earlier about the, the statistics of women and girls who've been abused. And the statistics show that one in four girls by the time they're 18 will have been sexually abused or violated. But I submit to you today that that number is incorrect. Those numbers are based on the people who report the abuse. Amen? So we're talking about one in four. The true number, I would venture to say or estimate, is about one in three. So what that would mean is as we count off here, like we do when we're getting into groups at school, if we count off one, two, three, boom, one, two, three, boom, guess what? That's the number of people in our church who have experienced traumatization sexual trauma, the way Tamar experienced sexual trauma that night in her brother's chamber. So when we talk about the church and when we talk about who's affected by abuse and trauma, we're talking about a great number of us. Amen? We don't want to talk about it, though, do we? We don't want to talk about it. So Tamar was just entering into puberty, just blossoming into this beautiful young woman I mean, I can just envision her. She was very confident. She wore the robe that they described in the scripture with the sleeves that are like billowing sleeves. And, and, it, and I can envision that the, the robe that she wore was maybe fitted at the top and it came down at the bottom. And you look at it and it looks like a big rainbow. It's so many colors in it. And she's swirling around and she's so happy and confident and sure of herself as a young woman. 
she had not a fear in the world. The joy that you saw in Tamar was the joy of innocence. It was the joy of innocence. How many of you remember that joy? How many of you can think back to the moment that that joy was taken away from you? This is the very moment that this happened to Tamar. Here she is, singing, laughing, playing, trusting. She was doing and being everything a young girl does at her age. Her innocence was unmistakable, something to be cherished and protected. Meanwhile, as Tamar is twirling around in her wonderful dress that signified purity and chastity, her half-brother Amnon was in his chamber meditating on and entertaining impure thoughts about her. So much so that he devised a plan to somehow lure Tamar to where he was and then to groom her for the final act, which was the rape that we just read about in the Word of God. So many stories in the Word of God, aren't there, that are true to life. You read the Word of God and you're, some people think, oh, it's going to be this holier-than-thou reading and they're talking about flowers and sky and rainbows and clouds and how about no the word of God talks about real life and it talks about life so that we can gain an understanding from God's perspective of how we need to handle the lives that we've been given amen good bad or ugly and so here Amnon is cherishing his own perverted thoughts about Tamar fantasizing about her he has his, his servant to call her in, and um, their father, David, told her to go make some cakes and help him to help Amnon to feel better because he was so sick. Remember, he was feigning his illness. This is the exact way that predators work. They observe, they identify a victim usually someone who is unaware of what is going on in the real world, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> or someone who uh, maybe someone won't protect. And that's what Amnon decided, <clears throat> that Tamar was to be his next victim. So he lured her. He groomed her, just like a pedophile does, just like a family member might do in a family plagued with the demon of sexual immorality. And he gets her in there, and I love what she says. She tries to talk him out of it. <clears throat> Here is this prepubescent girl. This is her older brother. She's trying to feed him cakes that she made. He's not grabbing the cake. She's offering the cake, and he's pulling her arm. And she says to him, do not violate me. Do not violate me. You know why I love that is because those are the words of an empowered little girl even though he ended up overtaking her, in those moments before she was victimized, she had a voice. Do not violate me. This is not going to look good on you. If people find out something's going to happen to you, I'm going to be hurt. We're going to disgrace our family. This isn't the right thing to do. Don't do it. And so in those early moments, before her victimization, Tamar was very, very empowered. 
Little did she know what was coming. He rapes her. And then like so many other abusers, rapists, pedophiles, he throws her out on the street. That's what the enemy does. He lures you in, he victimizes you, and then he throws you out there to expose you to the world. That's what the enemy does. And so I want us to all be clear that as we're studying this story, that we understand that it's not Amnon that Tamar was fighting against in those moments of her victimization. It was the enemy who Amnon had entertained and who he had succumbed to the ideas and suggestions of. And so I just want us to get clear on that. We're going to get into that a little bit later in today's talk. Oh, my goodness, it's already now. <laughs> so he throws her out on the street, and in her moment of vulnerability, he presents her back to the world as dirty, filthy, nasty, disgusting, unloved, unwanted, someone who nobody would ever want to be around. And as a result of that, she puts ashes on her head. <clears throat> she tears the robe that represented her purity. She cries out loud. That's another telling piece for her. Initially, she was not quiet about what happened to her. She told. She, she, she showed her emotions. She was still very in tune with her emotions and her feelings. The moment that she was silenced was the moment that we read about <clears throat> when Absalom came to her and said, did Amnon do something to you? She was like, yep, he touched me, he raped me. And what did Absalom say? What did he say? Did he tell, him, did he tell her, tell everyone and let's make sure that legal authorities are, are okay. What did he say? He silenced her. He told her, be quiet. He said, keep it under the rug. In that very moment of Absalom telling Tamar to be quiet, to not tell, that is the moment that her shame was born. It wasn't born in the act of the rape. It wasn't born in even the act afterwards of Amnon throwing her out and put, putting her up there as though she were dirty and filthy. The very act of Absalom telling her to be quiet and not to share with anyone what had happened was the moment that Tamar's shame was born. And for so many of us, if we look back and think back to our own victimization, that's when our shame was born. When somebody told us, don't say nothing, be quiet, you lying, you started it, it's your fault, what did you have on, what was happening that night, were you messing with him, well how did he rape you, what really happened, questioning you, telling you that perhaps the voice that you had to tell what happened to you wasn't a valid voice. And that's what happened to Tamar. <clears throat> but. Tamar's story and the sad commentary on shame for her, it started so much longer ago than the story with Amnon began. Tamar's father, David, who we all know very well, don't we? David had his own stuff to deal with. He had a lot to be ashamed about. He stole his first commander's wife. He committed adultery on his own wife. He concocted a plan to have his mistress's husband murdered. I mean, David was dealing with a lot of his own demons. And so what's interesting to me reading this scripture is, I don't know if you all noticed this, but I did because I had to study it. We don't hear David's voice. This is his daughter. At this time, based on historical references, this was his only daughter at the time. Why would David, a king with great power and great authority, 
Why would he buckle at a time like this? His daughter, it is found out that his daughter was raped by his son. And the scripture says, David was very angry. It doesn't say anything else about what he did about it. And I read the Bible commentary on this, and it says, David knew what happened to Tamar, and he did nothing. Shame. Shame paralyzes you, doesn't it? It's like, it's like the kryptonite of the human soul. It, when, you, when, when shame comes into your life and when it's present, God's power cannot do <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> what it was designed to do. God's power, his spirit, cannot move the way God created it to move. And so in those moments when David found out that his only daughter at the time had been raped by his son, <coughs> It was shame that shut his mouth. It was shame that shut his mouth. I want you to take note of some patterns here. In David's past, we see murder. We see sexual sin. We see deceit. In David's children, we see murder. We see sexual sin. We see deceit. Do you see that pattern? Okay. So we're dealing with the generational curse here. We're dealing with the generational curse here. Um, a curse that probably began long before David was even thought of. I'm not even going to say probably. How about it did? This curse that started at the tree in the Garden of Eden, the curse of sin. When we experience shame, um, scientific studies show that our brains respond to shame in the same way that our brains respond to trauma. Our brains go into a fight, flight, or freeze mode when we are in a state of trauma or when we're in a state of shame. So when we're looking at David and his response to his daughter's victimization, he hears that his daughter has been victimized, that it's a sexual sin that has caused this to happen. He goes back into his own shame and trauma mode, and what is his response? Freeze. Y'all can talk back to me. It's okay. This is a black church, right? Call and response. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he froze. He froze, and he didn't know what to do because he had so many other demons that he was dealing with that weren't resolved. And so, this curse, going back to the curse, it started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It continued through the time when Jesus was with us and the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. It continued then. It continued long through the ages of eternity and through antiquity. And the curse, finally, the curse was broken when Jesus came, died, and rose again. I submit to you all today, church, that the very shame that David was carrying and that some of us are carrying, that we're carrying it unduly, that Jesus already came to die for our shame. And I'm going to show you how. We're going to unpack this thing. The shame that we're talking about with Tamar, with David, with Amnon, even with Absalom, and in our own lives, <clears throat> it's a stronghold. How many of you know what a stronghold is? Some people are raising their hand, but that's okay because I'm about to define it. So we all know, and we can use this to apply to our lives. We're going to unpack this thing. The dictionary says a stronghold is a well-fortified place, a fortress, 
a refuge or a hiding place. Now, that's what the secular definition is. But I looked and tried to find a scholarly, a biblical scholarly definition of a stronghold, and, and I found one. It describes shame as built up, built up. Remember, it said it's a fortress. What is a fortress? A wall. So when we talk about the scriptural or spiritual definition of, of shame or a stronghold, it's a built-up deception and a, it's a built-up wall of deception and lies we believe about ourselves and God. It's a method that Satan uses to disempower us by reminding us of our past, how badly we failed. It encourages us to, medicate, to meditate on our past failures. I like that definition because it kind of brings it home, doesn't it? It lets us see that a stronghold isn't some obscure thing that you hear people saying when they're about to pray. We're going to tear down the strongholds. We're going to do... How about this? Let's understand that everyone in this room has at least one stronghold, including me. I'm just being a vessel today. And today, we're going to start to understand how strongholds impact our lives in every way. It impacts our relationships with others. It impacts our relationships with ourselves. It impacts our relationship with God. Just like we talked about the definition a couple of minutes ago, it is a lie or deception that we believe not only about ourselves, but about who? You... God, about God. So the enemy sets it up so that we don't see God's true character. And we believe that, just like the girl was saying a little bit earlier, why would God allow me, this nine-year-old girl going on 10, right? How many of you saw that earlier today? Why would he allow this nine-year-old girl going on 10 to be molested and sexually abused. What kind of God would allow this to happen to me? How many of you all have asked yourselves that question? It doesn't have to be abused. I see you all aren't raising your hand because y'all don't want to tell nobody that y'all were abused. But think about your own life. Think about moments in your life where things happened to you that you had no control over. Think about your own life and moments of hopelessness and helplessness that you had that nobody helped you, nobody listened to you, nobody heard you. Your voice was silenced. You can't tell me that you didn't ask what kind of God would allow something like this to happen to me. So now that we know what a stronghold is, we're going to go into our second text. You don't have to stand. <laughs> Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And let's read this together. Second Corin Actually, let's start at, at verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. We're going to wrap this up. Give me about 10 minutes and we'll wrap this up. Say amen when you have it. Amen. I think that's enough of us. So we're going to start reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, and we're going to read together. 1, 2, 3, begin. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, um, let's see, I think I had what the King James Version says. I'm going to have Jan Janice, will you read the King James Version of that scripture? Do you have King James or NIV? Okay, go ahead and read it. You can come up. Because this is the scripture that we have heard over the years, and I want it to be read so that it makes an impression in your brain of something that you've already heard. Go ahead and read it. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God to pull down strongholds. 
You hear what the scripture is saying? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not of the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare have divine power to tear down or to destroy strongholds. What does that mean to you? I read this the other night and I was like, I have never read this the way I'm reading it now. The power and authority that God has given us is strong enough by the power of his blood to tear down, destroy, and utterly ameliorate strongholds. That shame, that fear, that's um, any other stronghold that you can think of. The power is within us to destroy the stronghold. So what are we standing here for waiting for somebody else to heal us? The power is within us to tear down the stronghold. Amen? We are not powerless over our condition. For once we accept Jesus Christ into our lives and into our hearts, that power is made manifest in us and nobody can stop it except us. We're the ones who walk around afraid. Well, I don't want to say because I don't want to get... How about this? Was Jesus saying, I don't want to say because I don't want to... He said what he had to say, amen? I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, amen. And so today, what I want to do and what God has instructed me to do is make us all aware of the power through the blood of Jesus Christ that lies within us. We are living in a time when the power is desperately needed. And we're sitting in a church. I've sat here for months and months and months and years and years and years, and I have watched the decrease of power in the church. I have watched uh, uh, the power of God be enfeebled in the church. I'm listening to sermons and people talking. Not just, and I'm not just talking about abundant life. I'm talking about other churches too, okay? Because, like the Bible talks about, his spirit will be lifted from the earth in the last days. Because it will be lifted from the earth or removed from the earth, and it's distant, we have to make a specific and very intentional effort to keep the power of the Holy Spirit within us because it's being removed from the earth so that it can get ready for when Jesus comes back. Conversely, this is the very time when the power is needed. People are dying. People are dying. I'm working with people every day. Actually, yesterday I had two calls, suicide calls, suicide attempts. Um, suicidal ideations is what they call them, suicidal gestures. I even remember a couple of years ago when I was working in a uh, mental health hospital here, Spring Mountain Treatment Center, and I think a few of my friends know this story, but I worked at a, in an acute unit an acute psychiatric unit for adolescents. And there were two weeks straight I would come into work. We had, say, 18 beds at that time. And about 13 of the beds were filled with youth who had come in because they were attempting to jump out in front of a car to kill themselves. I met with them, and I asked them, well, what exactly happened? Well, I was walking down the street, and all of a sudden, I heard a voice say, you probably should kill yourself. Go jump out in front of that car. So you're having command hallucinations. That's what that's called. That's the enemy. That's the devil. It is of the devil. And let me tell you something. Can't no medication medicate a demon. And so I want you all to understand that that is an example of how desperate the enemy is to destroy us. It is just like the, just like the Lord creates campaigns in heaven for our souls. 
The enemy conversely creates campaigns in heaven to destroy us. It is not a coincidence that 13 out of the 18 people in the beds at that hospital for a period of two weeks, they all received the same message. Isn't that interesting? That's because it was a device of the enemy. It was a plan. It was a scheme. It was a strategy. We're going to go to Las Vegas, and we're going to get 13 kids. They're all going to end up at Spring Mountain. But I want you, demon, to, I want you to whisper in her ear as she's walking down the street so I can make sure that she's dead before she has a chance to give her heart to God. The devil is a lie. And it is the reason why I'm up here today is because people are dying. And who else is going to save them? Who is going to tell them you don't have to live in your shame anymore? You don't have to live in darkness anymore. You don't have to be unsure about your future anymore. Who else is going to tell them but us? But we're so scared, wondering, well, wait a minute, I heard they smoke weed, so I'm going to leave them alone. Oh, well, I heard she was in the game, so I'm just going, I'm not even going to say nothing. What? He pimping her? Oh, well, what? I'm not going to say. Close your mouth and get to ministering. How dare we sit up here and act like we are too good to minister to certain people. We are too good to talk to certain people. We are too good. That is evidence of the lack of power in our lives. We have rejected the true power of the gospel. And we're doing it with righteous indignation, which is sickening. It's sickening. Exactly. Whoever said that. (laughs) exactly having a form of godliness you saying amen all day long and then when somebody come up to you or and ask you for a piece of bread you like i don't know if you i don't got time we got to get it together i'm gonna wrap this thing up god is a god of deliverance He's a God of deliverance. The word of God says, and I'm not going to have you to go here because we're wrapping up on time. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, and we all know this one, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame, and, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That lets us know the victory has already been won. Amen? So, so, so it says Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. Shame is repulsive to Jesus. You know why? Why do you think shame is repulsive to him? I'll tell you. Because it tries to deceive us into believing that we are hopeless. It cons us into thinking that we are a lost cause, that we are forgotten, that we are forsaken. When we carry shame with us, it makes Jesus nauseous. I looked up the word despise. I didn't make that up. I looked up the word despise in the dictionary, and it actually says the word nauseating. So when it says he despised the shame, it sickens him. You know why it sickens him? Because his arch enemy, the devil, has created this plan and this message that we're believing. Once again, the devil is a liar. This very shame is the very thing he came to deliver us from when he came and died and rose again. It's that very shame. In the garden, he came to deliver Adam and Eve from their shame by clothing them with sheepskin. That's his love. Amen? He could have left them naked and like, oh, well, uh, mm, too bad that you disobeyed. He came lovingly into the garden and was like, oh, my goodness, my child, here. 
Okay? So it started in the garden. He came to deliver us through the woman caught in adultery. He spoke words to the woman, and then he wrote words in the sand that, that delivered her from the snare of her enemies. Do you guys remember that? Mm-hmm. So they're coming up to him like, this woman, and let me tell you what she was doing. He was like, word? Okay. And everybody started walking away. Guess why? Because they had their own shame to deal with. They had their own sin that they needed to address with the father. They had no right to point out her sin when they themselves had a plethora of sins that needed forgiveness. Amen? And so even in that moment, God was covering and delivering her 